My purpose in life is to leave my dent in the universe in absolutely everything I do, as well as to inspire and help others do the same. For someone to leave their dent in my life is a privilege. For me to leave my dent in someone else's life is an honor. But to inspire and help others leave their own dent in the universe is an indescribable feeling. I plan on doing this through this podcast by celebrating my guests and inspiring my listeners, all while leaving my own dent in the universe and helping others do the same. My name is Fer Andrade, and this is Denting. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Denting with Fer. Today, I have an amazing guest, someone that I'm barely starting to get to know, but really, like, this is a, an honor. Really, I am in the presence of greatness right now. Wow. Um, I mean, one of the best athletes we have here by far. So, Cameron Rogers, how are you? I'm good. What an intro. How are you? Good. I'm very excited for this. Um, Me too. This is, like, the first time I've sat down with someone I'm not very close with. So barely starting to get to know each other, excited for this and really looking forward to hear more, hearing more about your story and getting to know you. And uh, you as well. Yeah. I feel like by the end of this, I'm going to know like your deepest, darkest secrets. It's going to be fantastic. Oh, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> um, so for those that, I mean, don't have the pleasure of knowing you, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Uh, sure. Okay. So hi, everyone. My Name is Cameron Rogers, and I am a fourth year, going into my fifth year here at University of California, Berkeley. I'm on the track and field team. I'm a hammer thrower and... Major. Double uh, double majoring in political economy and society and environment. And where's home? Home for me is Richmond, British Columbia, Canada. There we go. <laughs> Got to get that three title. Got to get the whole thing in there. Yeah. <laughs> so... Cam and I met thanks to a leadership showcase, which we recently participated in. Mm -hmm. Um, We both got to talk a bit about our life journey and what makes us the the leaders we are today. Um, And I want to dive in a bit deeper to to that talk that you gave. Mm -hmm. So you're, I mean, you're prepared for this because you already (laughs) gave your own talk, but... Hopefully. Hopefully. No, it's fine. It's still a conversation, but you... Talk a bit about your, your journey from your teenage years. So take me back to, first off, like, is is uh, hammer throwing a popular sport back home? How do you get into that? Like, personally, for me, it's not part of my culture at all. Like, soccer is, you know, but, but hammer throwing is not. So how did you get into that in the first place? Uh, okay, well, first, you were definitely right. And honestly, I think anywhere, hammer throw is such a small sport but it just has this incredible community behind it and so I actually got started because my mom she's a hairdresser Uh and she had a lot of friends and a lot of clients who were a part of the track club that I'm in at home and so they kept telling her you know you should bring Cameron out she should try running she should try sprinting and I was like (laughs) (laughs) and but I made a last minute decision (laughs) made a last minute decision one night like 10 minutes before the first practice of the new year started to go out and see if I could meet people see if I could meet a coach because I had never done a sport 
before doing track and field. What year was this? How old were you? This was January 5th, 2012. I was 12 years old. Whoa. Mm. (laughs) At 12 years old, you had never done a sport? Nope. Wow. No, I didn't have the opportunity to up until that point because my mom and I, when I was younger, like my mom is a single parent. I mean, now she... She has a fee, like she has her fiance. They've been together for a number of years, and you know, so kind of referred to them both as my parents. But okay. at the time, definitely like single parent, and we were having to commute like an hour each way every day for me to go to school and for her to go to work. And so, it was just not a possibility yeah. at that time when I was a kid to kind of do any sports or sort of any extracurricular activities. Yeah. Uh, so. But she was very, she was very, very supportive right from the very beginning. I mean, she's a marathon runner, so okay. she, she definitely wanted me, I think, to be involved in something. It was just finding what that thing was. Okay. And I definitely feel like I got lucky very early on to get involved with track and to find my passion right from the start. So I went out on that day, 10 minutes before that practice started, and I ended up meeting my first coach named Richard Collier. Okay. And Richard's worked with a number of athletes. He sent a large number of people as well to the States for university. Okay. And he was very involved in the track and field community for many years before he passed. And so when I met him, it was... What a night. That man was just... Had such a personality. But you could tell right from the start that he was incredibly dedicated to his athletes and to what he was doing. Like, he loved coaching, you know, and it really was a family that we had, that we still have at home, and I just feel very grateful. You know, I'm very grateful that I was able to meet such incredible people from, you know, the ripe age of 12. Yeah. What do you say that during those times... um, being busy commuting several ways for school, for your mother's work, um, and then adding this, you mentioned the word family. For many people, going to a sport or an activity with a certain group, it's always a, a family. And having those, at least for me personally, growing up, I, I have a father figure in soccer, mm-hmm. right? Um, so was that something you needed in your life like throughout those times? I know for me, this opened way too many doors that I did not know existed. So how did that work for you once you were introduced to the game? It's so crazy once you get into your sport and you meet all of these individuals who have such different backgrounds and come from different walks of life and have so much to share with you about their experiences, all of their experiences. And for me getting involved meeting these people, it really did become a family and that family was very important to me. It still is very important to me. I have friends that I met right from that first day that, you know, whose relationships I still cherish to this day. And that now is a nine year long sort of connection that I've been able to build through this, which is absolutely like mind blowing, (laughs) I think, because those relationships really do, or they can last a lifetime. I mean, I know I'm only 21 going on 22, but for the most part, I know that these are the kinds of friendships that I will, you know, I'll hold with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. And so family definitely is very important. Yeah. And I think especially in track too, like, I'm curious as to what you think 
with uh, with soccer, but with track, I think it's also very interesting because you are on a team. But there's many teams within the team, right? Exactly. There's different event groups, and then you are competing on your own. You know, there's no one else competing with you. Yeah. You know, whether you win or lose, that's all on you. Yeah. And so it is kind of funny to to consider that group around you to be your family, but to be so individualistic at the same time. Do yeah. you find that being part of a team sport has been, like, different in that regard? A hundred percent. And I didn't grow up doing other sports, but the one time I did try another sport was track. Um, my freshman year, <laughs> it, was, I like to hear. it was mostly because... Um, I wanted to, it was my freshman year of high school, and I wanted to get a Letterman jacket so bad. I wanted to be the freshman with the Letterman jacket, because not a lot of people are, are like, get it, right? Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right, what sport could I do? Because in soccer, the way it used to work is you can't play high school soccer and academy soccer, two completely different things, and you can't participate in both. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So So you can't do both. Um, and I was like, what other sport could I do? And I'm like, oh, I run, like, playing soccer. So go for it. I have it. a question, actually. Go, go for it. Is, okay, so school school soccer and academy soccer. So academy soccer would be just outside of school. That's, like, separate. Would you call it, like, club almost? Yeah, so basically the, the way it works is the, the reason uh, people... You can tell you, I haven't done another sport. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, hey, I'm in the same shoes when we're going to talk about track a bit more, so don't even worry about it. Um, so... There's, yeah, it's basically club. Um, the reason it's called academy is because club soccer can play high school, but the league that was called Developmental Academy, which no longer exists, mm. um, specifically said you cannot play high school soccer. So that's, there was high school, that's only like two months. Club, that's basically year-round except for high school. And academy, which is all all 12 months. So okay. that, that was basically the difference. Um so I do track that year, mm-hmm. and I was all used to just being with my teammates all the time, usually like a bit over 20 of us. I show up to track, and there's, like, even within the long-distance runners, because I was doing the 3200, there was... Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It, like, there was 3200, and then we were separate from the, the sprinters. And then we were separate from the jumpers. And I didn't even know if we had throwers or not. So um, it was definitely a different experience, um, something I wasn't used to. But like you said, it's always a family, so so that's nice. Um, You get into this family. You're starting to get to know people. When does Cameron Rogers jump from not knowing anything about hammer throwing to becoming, like, really good at hammer throwing? Oh, man, that's a good question. Or how does that happen? I feel like you're always developing your skill. You're always building your skill. I mean, really in anything that you start doing, you know, like you're always learning something new. But that is a good question. Because when I started, the thing was that at the time, being 12, our provincial, um, like, athletics association bc athletics they had this program called the run jump throw wheel where if you do events from each one you know you're a kid like you could you could get awarded this like little gold patch that you could put onto a jacket or your backpack (laughs) and so everyone was like oh my god so (laughs) i ended up doing my first year so even though i started out with throwing 
every meet that I did that year, I did the, okay, let's see, I did shot put, discus, the 100, the 200, the 4x1, long jump, and then towards the end of the year when my coach thought that I didn't look as bad as I did when I started, I started doing hammer throw. Okay. In competition, so seven events. <laughs> Not in a single day. That was throughout the whole season, right? That was in two-day meets. So it's split. It's not a single day thing where you do all seven in a single day. No. Okay. That would be a lot. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's still a lot in two days, but. I mean, that's a lot. That's the. That's like what they do for the heptathlon, but they have more like distance and like hurdles. Like it's not just those events, but yeah, seven events in two days or yeah. three days, and that's insane. Like I don't know how multi athletes do it. They're they're on another level. Yeah. I mean, also in. You weren't even a teenager, or you were about to become a teenager, so that's ridiculous. So you get to know all of those. Mm-hmm. So I got to meet a bunch of, like, different people throughout those as well, but definitely towards the end of that year, you know, I got my little gold patch. woo <laughs> <laughs> And then the next year, I actually cut that down to just throwing and then the 4 by one because my club, like, we just had a 4 by one team. Okay. And... It was really fun. I really liked the girls that I was running with and wanted to stick with that a little bit longer. So I kind of did that a little bit, but definitely new throwing was more my area of in, of interest. Yeah. So. And you start getting into the, the throwing, like, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, in Well, you already mentioned how this coach meant so much for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and in your talk, you actually talk about him, uh, in your leadership talk. So what role does he play in that development and how did he still impact you today? Like in that transition from maybe having fun and gaining that gold sticker on your backpack to a D one thrower, like in, in that short time, because you're saying this was 12, 13 years old, and you came to college at what, 17, 18? 18. Okay, so that's only five years. That's not a, like, for, for us. That's kind of scary when you put it like that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a quick transition for, for me and for other soccer players. We started playing when we were five, you know? So we've been doing this a long time, and for you to wow. say 12, and add, like, you started this at 12, <laughs> and what, nine? A bit less than a ten than ten years later, you're going to the Olympics for the exact same sport. Like that is not how it works for us. I'm so confused. So, how does that happen? <laughs> I mean, my first coach, Richard Richard Collier, he was just so supportive and everything. I mean, I think he knew from the beginning. Like I came out that first day, and he he told me, "Okay, I want you to throw that thing over there," and it was the <laughs> hammer. I didn't know what a hammer was. I had never seen one before, and I kind of looked at it, and I was like, that looks like a murder weapon. <laughs> How am I supposed to throw that? And he kind of showed me, like, the very, very basics and said, okay, do that. And I was like, okay, <laughs> okay, coach. And so I did it. I did my little winds, because in hammer you have your initial winds, and then you go into your turns. Okay. And so I did a couple little whines and prayed and then like let it go. And I was like, and he looked at me and just kind of went, you know what? I think we can work with that. (laughs) You think? (laughs) Yeah, I think. And so that's, 
that honestly is where it started. It started right at that moment. And I wanted to know everything about this sport. Everything. And at the time, we, we had a couple women, like Canadian women who... Oh, yeah, because it was 2012. And so that was the London Olympics. That's right. Yeah. That was the year of the London Olympics. And so we had two Canadian women who had qualified to go for Hammer. And I remember seeing them at meets being like, Mom, I don't know if I can go up. <laughs> oh, you, you, you saw them personally? Like, yeah. You, you knew them? Like, yeah, seeing them at meets because they were both, like, at one point or another, they were competing around where I lived or in, oh, like, wow. professional meets, like, near me. And so I remember going and watching, especially this this one meet. I can't remember if it was in if it was that year or the year after, but either way, still, still beginning, like whether you're in year one or year two, like still starting, yeah, still starting, still learning. But they, both of these women were competing. Uh, Sultana Frizzell, who's a Canadian record holder and this other woman named Heather Stacy. And they were competing with this other German hammer thrower, this woman named Catherine Kloss, who is just so fast when she throws. It was insane. And the current world record holder at the time, Betty wow. Heidler, and all of these women were just throwing. I remember looking at them and being like, wow, they just look so powerful and so strong. And they were like superheroes to me. Like I wanted to be like them. Yes. And when I had the chance to meet them. You the, met them. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, it's throwing is a very tight knit community. Okay, people tell, definitely know each other. Tell me about this. Tell me about this. So I remember meeting them, and here's the, here's this little thing. So when I meet someone like a very accomplished thrower, I mean really anyone who's like very accomplished, professional, whatever, but I get into this really bad fangirl okay. <laughs> kind of uh, kind of moment, even with people who I've known for. For years at this point, like I'll still like Sultana will message me now. Wow! And she'll be like, "Hey, congrats!" The, on ca- your the life. Canadian uh, record holder. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so she'll she'll message me and be like, "Hey, you know, like I I saw your results in this past week and congratulations!" And I'll be like, "Oh my God, it's such an honor! Thank you so much! What a blessing! <laughs> like yeah. I, I feel so lucky to know you." And she's like, "Oh my God, shut up!" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, at the time I met them, I was like. Hi, my name is Cameron, and I'm starting out, but I love what you do, and it's such an honor to meet you. <laughs> and they just both laughed at me yeah. <laughs> because they're like, it was this young child. But they were so nice, and they've always been so nice and so supportive and always very open about their training and about what they've learned in sport and about their travels and just everything. Like, it's it definitely has been a pleasure to learn from them, as well as so many other athletes, you know, all around the world. I've had the pleasure now of representing my country four times. Okay, and in what um, competitions? So I qualified for the World Junior, so like under 20 years old, World Junior Championships when I was 16, and they were in Poland. Okay. And then the year after that was Pan Am Juniors, Pan Americans, like North America, Central and South America. And they were in Peru. Okay. And then the year after that was World Championships again in Finland. And I touched on that in my speech from last night. Yes. And then the year after that, 
yeah, 2019 was pan, like a senior, like senior Pan Am championships in uh, back in Peru. Okay. So I've been to Peru twice and then Poland and Finland. And Tokyo coming up. <laughs> Tokyo coming up. <laughs> so so before we, well, to, to work our way up to Tokyo right now, mm-hmm. um, you mentioned representing your country at age 16. You started at 12. So now the window gets even tighter. Was the the pressure you talked about um, in your speech, I mean, the people here probably don't know what we're talking about, so maybe give context on that, but did that play a role in that four-year transition? What did you have to do to get there that quickly from not knowing what a hammer was to representing your country in four years? And, like, how did that happen? So, okay, I'm going to try and explain this in, like, the briefest way possible. Go for it. So at the end of my first year, I was throwing a three-kilogram hammer. Okay. That's, like, the youth weight that's, like, the kind of under-college competition weight for women. Got it. Uh, Well, for any country outside of the United States. In the United States, you basically throw the professional adult uh, senior level weight, which is a four kilogram hammer, the entire time. Wow. (laughs) Uh, And for men, when it changes like every two years, it's kind of wild. But basically the senior level weight for men's hammer throw is a 7.26 kilogram hammer, which is 16 pounds. And so for women, it's 8.8. Okay. And the 3K when I was younger was 6.6. So when I was starting out throwing the 3K, I think I finished off my first year throwing 42 meters. Okay. And then the year after that, I think I hit 53? That's a big jump. (laughs) 53 meters. It was... I was very happy with that jump, and I think the year after that, 57. But... To get to World Junior Championships, you have to throw a four kilogram hammer. And so my fourth year of doing the sport, I definitely started focusing more on training with that. So heavier weight, you definitely need to be more technically sound, you need to get stronger. And so, I mean, at the time, you know, Richard, my first coach, Richard, he definitely, I don't think, didn't want us to do like any like crazy weights or anything of the nature, just because starting younger people in the weight room. Yeah, does that play a role? I wanted to ask that because you mentioned starting this at 12, 13. I know, I mean, for for everyone, really, that's when our bodies are barely growing and changing. So how does that work out with weights? So I started doing more weight training on my own uh, when I was about 16. Oh, okay. So until your first competition right there kind of was that when you made the jump to four kilos that was necessary or uh right before that yes and so he had us doing little exercises and kind of conditioning circuits up until then so that we could build our strength slower more naturally i guess like without any sort of other materials or anything of the sort so yeah so building strength a strength up until that moment it was like a constant kind of, cause you're growing at the same time and then you're like trying to get stronger. And so you see these bigger jumps, I think, you know, when you're younger and the first competition I tried to qualify for like international competition was the world youth championships, okay. which were being held in Colombia. Okay. 
and I didn't qualify that year. What year was that? That was in 2015. Okay, so three years into it. Three, year, three years in. Jeez. Three years in. Oh, my gosh. Wow, that seems so long ago now. <laughs> How much did you have to practice in those three years to be able to even co- compete, like qualify for the competition to then be able to qualify? Like, how much work do you have to put in for that to be possible? So right from when I started, like, doing sports, <laughs> like, doing track, my, like, Richard had us training six days a week. Okay. But at the same time, we were only doing, at least I was only doing one session a day, and it was just throwing. Okay. Like, just throwing, just because we weren't doing any weight training, lifting, anything of that nature so six days a week and it my body hurt so much the first week that i joined i remember sitting in class and just being like i can't move my arms yeah. <laughs> how how am i supposed to get up from my desk but yeah so six days a week and then kind of tweaking it month to month yep. year to year based on your development and your growth and then by the time 2015 kind of swung around one of my teammates was also trying to qualify and she did qualify to go which was awesome and so did one of my best friends at the time they were the two canadian uh hammer throw youth women to qualify to go nice which was awesome i was really happy for them but i was also like oh my gosh like what can i do to to get better to improve and so the next year 2016 was the world junior championships in poland and funny enough, they actually got switched around location-wise. Why is that? They were initially supposed to be held in Russia. Oh. <laughs> but 2016 was the year that the whole Russian doping scandal came out. Yeah. So it got switched to Poland. And I remember at the time trying to like learn how to say hello in Russian. And <laughs> then switching to Polish and... Both of them were very, very hard. <laughs> I can imagine, yes. But just really trying to visualize myself being there and competing. And so train more with the 4K. The qualifying standard to go at the time was... Oh, God, it's been so long. It's been like five years. Five years now, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I think it was like 57 meters. That's still a lot. 57 meters with a 4-kilogram hammer. Well, that that was what you were doing with 3K like a year ago then, right? Yeah, like a year or two before. The year before, I ended up throwing 65 meters with a 3K. Okay. I kind of left that part out. <laughs> I, yeah. threw that, I threw that after the stand, not sorry, not after the standard, after the selection for World Youth came out. My okay. two friends had gone, and I ended up hitting the standard after they had gone. I was like, of course. Yeah. <laughs> of course. But, again, maybe it's because at the time I felt that kind of relief of not having that standard kind of over my head. And uh, and so I was able to sort of relax a little more in the competition and yeah. then get that throw off. But we were starting to train more with the, with the 4K up until that point. And I believe I had thrown, like, 52 meters with it like 50 52 meters with it at that point and so jumping from 52 to 57 with a 4k is i was like where do i even start yeah that's a lot that's really a lot so 
were, were you surprised? How, how did you manage that? Did that competition go well because of that? Like, how does that happen? Yeah, I don't know what to say. Like, how do you make that jump out of nowhere? <laughs> so it really is trusting the process, which is such a cheesy line. <laughs> <laughs> Trust the process. Trust the process. But things are cheesy because they're true. Yeah. So I had to really trust what Richard was doing with our training and know that the kind of tweaks, the kind of different changes he was making in our training regimen were going to help. And at that point, we started doing a little more kind of weight training as well, like a tiny, tiny little bit. I mean, doing like barbell weight, okay? <laughs> okay? Maybe with like... a like a couple tens thrown on, maybe a 25 if it was a crazy Whoa. day. <laughs> but I ended up qualifying to go to Worlds with like a 59 meter throw. And I was like, oh my God, it's happening. I'm going. And then as soon as I got excited, I instantly became terrified. Why? Because all of a sudden... It's like you work so hard to achieve this thing, and then the realization sets in where you're like, I'm going to be representing my country. I'm going to be in a completely different country. I've never been in a competition like this before. I've never felt so much stress. I've never felt so much pressure, which, again, you know, from go. last night, yep. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Full circle back around to, pre to, to pressure, but... Yeah, so for, for those tuning in, I talked in my speech last night about pressure and my progression with getting over the kind of stress that it was giving me and being more confident in myself in competing and in school and that pressure does not have to be this debilitating force. It essentially, for me, has become the sort of power, the sort of fuel source. It's what it's really honestly what gets me going in competitions. That's what kind of, you know, fuels me up. That's what gets my power bar <laughs> to, yeah. to full capacity. So I've been able to learn from it and use it to my advantage. But at the time... It wasn't that way. It was not that way at all. How do you deal with that in the beginning and how do you make the transition for it to become your fuel? So that year went to Worlds, did terribly. Okay. Like, did not qualify for the finals, came in, I think, third to last. Okay. <laughs> like, I, think, I think I came, like, 22nd out of 24 girls who were there competing. Did horribly. And that was also the year... When was that? That was my junior year of high school. Okay, so right before... Right before recruiting starts as well. Okay. So I basically competed and thought, oh my god, it's over. <laughs> this is the end. No way. <laughs> I, I just getting into that recruiting process too, and as a 16-year-old, um, at the time I competed 17. I had just turned 17 when okay. I competed. But, but still, like, going through that entire process being 16, being 17, you immediately think that any failure you have is going to just be the end of your entire career. Yeah. I think. And then when you when when you get selected to your national team and then you feel like you've let your whole country down, 
when you drop the ball yeah. at Worlds, like I just got into my bed that night and just cried my eyes out. But at the time, that's when I was talking to coaches and the coach from here, from from Cal, his name's Mo. Shout out Mo. Shout out Mo. <laughs> but he messaged me and just said, hey, Dick, don't worry about today. This is your first big international competition and you have so much more left to build and develop. Like this is not, <laughs> this is not even near the end of your road. You are still at the beginning, kid. Like calm down, everything's fine, okay? Because no. I, I honestly thought that doing poorly there was going to, to make all these coaches immediately stop recruiting me. Did you think of giving up, or was it that you were scared of not getting recruited by others? I was scared of not getting recruited. Okay. Definitely, like, for me, I think giving up has never been an something. Option. No, no, basically, Good. not even an option. Good. So, <laughs> woo. But, uh, yeah, at the time, I didn't know kind of how to bounce back from that or how to not forget about the experience, but learn from it instead so as to not do it again. Okay. And so talking to these coaches, I ended up talking to my coach at home, too. I'm mentioning a lot of coaches right now. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, my first coach was Richard Collier. And then when he passed away, his son, Garrett, Collier took over his coaching position in our club. Okay. We love Garrett. Shout out Garrett too. Shout out Coach Garrett. <laughs> and he's my he's my coach at home. So he trained me from sixteen to eighteen. And then also when I'm home, he's the person who looks over my training. But Coach Mo has been my coach since I've come to Berkeley, since I've become a Golden Bear, and since I've been competing for Cal. Yes. So he He's the one who does all of the all the organizing, all of the training plans, all of the everything now. Two cool questions just to know how it works. Yes. First one is how many throwers per team? And second one is when you compete internationally, mm -hmm. do you switch coaches or how does that work? So when you say how many throwers per team? Um, are you the only thrower at Cal on the women's side? I am not. Actually, when I came in, we had a huge team. And so so the throws squad, uh, so it consists of hammer throwers, shot putters, dis discus throwers, and javelin throwers. Are you specifically only doing hammers? or do you do Yes, you okay. do not want to see me do any other event. Okay. It is not pretty. Okay. <laughs> it's been, uh, let's see, this past weekend for our dual meet against Stanford, they had me throw shot put and... Yeah, oof, I'm a one-trick pony. Okay. <laughs> We're going to keep okay. it that way until we get to the indoor season where you do weight throw instead of hammer, and that's like a whole other thing. We don't even need to brush on it. Yeah, we'll, we'll do it's that in the, in the next podcast. <laughs> it's fine. But, uh, yeah, I'm only a hammer thrower. But right now on the team we have – oh, God, this is going to take a long time to count. Okay, hold on. Okay, so we'll just go with hammer throwers. There is a girl who just transferred here this year and she's from England she was at Nebraska she transferred here this year she's awesome her name's Anna and she's also one of our hammer throwers he's training another girl as well who competition wise is a freshman but she's a sophomore because of COVID yeah yeah and she's training in hammer as well and she's kicking butt she's doing really well she's she's a powerful powerful thrower it's crazy and so for 
for female hammer throwers. That's that's what we have right the now. Three. Okay. Yeah, three of us. But I think there's going to be. I think he's going to try and see if he can train other people okay. you know, coming in because I think hammer throw is one of those events that doesn't get coached as much when you're in high school, at least in the states, yeah. for like insurance <laughs> safety <Yeah>. reasons. <laughs> Uh, I was able to because I did it in, at, in club at home, but we don't really have it in school. Got it. Yeah, in school, like I, I've from what I've seen in high school, there's there's not a lot for that. So so that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's who we have on our team right now for for female hammer throwers. And then when you compete internationally, they assign a very specific coaching staff to go along with the team. So you will have. A co- you will have like a throws coach there who is traveling with the team, who's there to coach you if your own coach cannot go. Because if your coach decides to come to the international meet to coach you, yeah. he, they have to get a coaching pass, they have to be able to get accommodations, they have to do all of that, and it's not really organized through the... through, through the National Team Association. Yeah. Like, except for the coaching pass... And things like that. So it's a little harder. So it is individual, basically. Basically. That's separate from soccer where whole team, same coach, do what they say, game over. Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So definitely all very individualistic. And I've been very lucky to have Mo come and coach me at Worlds, like in Finland, um, at the end of my freshman year. Let's talk about that one. I wanted to... I'm glad you brought it up. Um, (laughs) I know a bit about that story. Mm -hmm. Um context again you struggle freshman year mm-hmm. yes go to finland to, to touch on that okay so my freshman year coming into cal i mean the usual you know international student away from home yeah uh transitioning to being on your own but loved the experience loved this team and then when i went to regionals which is the meet where you qualify to go to nationals and they take the top 12 i came 13th and missed out on going by one inch. It's a game of inches. Oh, it literally is a game of centimeters. Millimeters. Millimeters, <laughs> even. Yeah, it's it's crazy because every centimeter really does count yeah. in throwing when it's an event that's measured by distance. Like, it's very, uh, what's the word? Precise quantitative? Or quant- yeah, quantitative, yeah. So, yeah, and it is very precise. Like, if you are one centimeter short of qualifying for a team, you're not going. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're one centimeter away. You're not getting selected. Yeah. So, yeah, I missed out by an inch, and, yeah, completely heartbreaking at the time because the entire year it felt like I was making these huge jumps. And I and I did, like, my freshman year. I, I did improve distance-wise. I think I improved by three-ish meters that year. Yeah, three meters and... <laughs> That's a lot. I mean, we were just talking about centimeters and inches. Three meters is a huge... It is. And jump. I think in hammer throw, it's easier too since it's a longer event. Got it. So having a three meter improvement in shot put isn't... It's not as likely, okay. <laughs> I would like to say, since the world record is 23 meters. You know, twenty three. I don't know the. I do not know the centimeters on that one yeah. off the top of my head. All good. Twenty three low, I think. 
And for Hammer, you know, the world record, and that was for men, by the way. Got it. So, and for men, the world record in Hammer is like 86 meters. Okay. So like 23 compared to 86. Huge difference, yeah. You're going to have those bigger jumps, and that's completely normal, and that's completely natural. So I was able to jump those three meters, and I think nationally going into regionals, because they split it up into like Western and Eastern, like they split the country into two, and then they bring... 12 people from each to nationals. Here in the U.S., right? Here for the NCAA. US. Yes, for okay. the NCAA. And so nationally, I think I was ranked 5th or 6th and came in 13th in, in the Western region. And, and it was because of that pressure. And with that pressure, I was telling myself the incorrect things that I'd never done before in competitions like why would I do them now yeah. <laughs> you know like when you practice a certain way when you compete a certain way don't change that system because it works for you yeah it's uh if it ain't broke don't fix it exactly <laughs> was not broke still tried to fix it broke okay. <laughs> and then it got and then it, and then it broke even more if it ain't broke don't fix it but if you do you're gonna break it yeah so. boom there we go he's a philosopher <laughs> Uh, okay, so... You, so, yeah, failure there, in a way, by one inch. What happens next? So, from that moment on, I talked to Mo, to Coach Mo, and said, and just said, I don't know what happened, I don't know what went wrong, and he basically said, you changed your system. Like, that's one thing I didn't really go into in my speech from last night. He said, don't change a system just because you feel like they're are all these expectations and stress and pressure. Do what works for you. Don't change things because you think that that's what is needed of you in that moment. You know, that's not what works when the time comes. You need to stick to your system, stick to our plan, trust that process. Trust the process. (laughs) And, And things will work out. Things will work. But when you don't do that, you have days like that day. Yeah. We are missing out on nationals by an inch. I think it, it has it ties into the speeches yesterday as well with being your authentic self. Mm-hmm. So in a way I feel like for me personally it was copying and learning from others, but once you start doing things your way, that's when things start getting into rhythm. I, I think it also ties into the stoic philosophy of just focusing on what you can control. And, like, ignoring the rest. For me, I think we're mentioning the same thing, but we focused a lot on what other people would say, other people would think, or what system may or may not work for certain things. And it's only until you realize, like, you can't control opinions or thoughts or other people, but you can't control yourself. And finding that authentic self is, like, what helps you succeed. Exactly. How did you succeed off of that? So I learned in that moment that I do really well with pressure, which sounds ridiculous because I crumbled under pressure (laughs) when the time came. But when I thought back to the competitions where I was successful, I was arguably, but equally as nervous, equally as as stressed, equally as almost afraid. But instead of letting it just completely take over my body you know, how it be this debilitating force, it caused me to tap into what I needed to do, if that makes sense. Like, it was, 
it was the catalyst for me accessing that power and that strength and that mindset in competition. So almost like, you know, that fight or flight, like it gets me into that fight mode. (laughs) So I was able to learn from that and move into this new stage almost of mindset and mentality and throwing that I hadn't been in before because, you know, got to get broken down to get built back up again. Exactly, yes. And so I knew I had another chance to do well, and it was at Worlds. And in a way, I almost was more scared, not because of what happened at regionals, but because it happened because of what had happened at the Worlds beforehand. Yeah. So it was my second time at Worlds, the first time being in Poland. This and time you were representing your country, so that's is that the difference maker there compared to nationals? This time, it was kind of like, I don't want to fail again. Yeah. But I also know now what I need to do in order to succeed. So that, for me, was the biggest difference, was knowing what didn't work, and more importantly, knowing what did work, and then training even harder in those, like, with training even harder with those certain things so as to not fall back into those bad habits. That's important. I feel like a lot of people that do give up in life don't, like, only give up and fail because they didn't keep going to find that. So, And it can take a long time to find that, too. Exactly. It's a long process, but the people that give up and call themselves a failure are only failing because they cut, they, they cut the, the whole problem in half or the whole process in half. And you're saying that as long as you keep on going and doing the right things, one way or another, it's, it's going to end up working out as long as you're doing what you're supposed to do and learning from what you're supposed to learn. Exactly. And I love what you said last night in your speech as well with... You know, we always applaud the outcome. We never applaud the process. Like, we never look back in appreciation of that process as much as we do with how we ended up at the end of the day. And I think looking back on this whole experience has made me appreciate that process so much more. Trust the process. Trust the process. (laughs) (laughs) You get the, like, tattooed on my arm. (laughs) Across my forehead. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But... But you're totally right, and that resonated very deeply with me just because it takes time. It takes time to learn your strength. It takes time to work on your weaknesses. And so going into Worlds, we were working so hard on these things, these kind of newfound, newfound to me, not newfound to my coach, but (laughs) these newfound ideas that, that we knew we're going to make all the difference. And then that's when those two major injuries came with my ankle and my ab right before Worlds, like literally the week before I was supposed to leave. Adversity. So we already talked about giving up. Adversity. Many people don't deal well with adversity. I think that uh, if you mess up your ankle and your abdomen, I think you you can easily say, well, I I just won't compete. I'm not fit to compete, and I just need to to rest and, and take care. I mean, that's what any doctor would say. What would Cameron Rogers say to that? You know what? If I can still breathe, we're going to get the job done. What what makes you have that mentality? 
you have put in, like, this is the way I think about it, you know, almost talking to myself, but I guess to other people as well. Up until that moment, you've put in so much time, so much work, and so much effort, and you've given so much of yourself to get to that level, this level that you've put as this goal for yourself for, you know, for, for years. You know, looking now at the Olympics this summer, that's a goal that has been in mind for years. Not just for myself, for every single athlete who wants to go compete at the games. Yeah. So, yes, there are times when you have certain factors like injuries where the best thing to do is to is to, you know, realize that taking the time now to heal yourself and come back stronger, that is the right thing to do. But at that moment, I could still breathe. Nothing was broken. Nothing was bleeding. And that's all I needed. Wow. As confirmation for myself that I had to go compete. Same for my coach. That was the year that Coach Mo, you know, out of his own pocket, paid to go and coach me in Finland. Wow. Like, went and got that coaching pass from Athletics Canada and got his hotel, his food, his everything ready so that he could come and coach me. And in a way, I didn't want to let him down. And I didn't want to fail again. And I think sometimes people think, oh, that's not like, that's not like a positive mindset. That's not the kind of mentality you want to have. But it's, it's true. When you're in those positions where you've, when you're in similar positions that you failed in in the past, you feel like you've come so far and you've learned so much. You want to be able to show everything that you've learned, prove that you've gotten better. Yeah. Let's make one thing real clear right now. Maybe you can say that, oh, that's the thing that many, many people will tell you not to do or that is wrong. But there's a reason why there's 99% of the population and then there's the 1%. This is the 1%. You know, this is where, this is how greatness is built in a way because, like I said, the 99% would have sat out. But this personal thing that you had for your coach, for yourself, for the competition there at worlds that just shows you well why you went on to do what you did which is you want do you want to say what what happened after that so you compete and i competed and i was able to get the the winning throw on my first throw mostly because also i knew that if i didn't get get it on that first throw the rest were just going to be it's going to be even harder every throw after because again sprained ankle completely like blown out ab i had athletic tape a back belt a waist oh my gosh i don't even know what they're called it's like this long band that you wrap around yourself has velcro on it so it basically holds you together yes and then like icy hot <laughs> that's what was holding my body together in that competition and every throw after was going to be even harder. After the competition, I could barely walk. Yeah. <laughs> Not saying everyone should do that, by the way. <laughs> Not Yeah, don't try this at home. Don't try this at home. <laughs> but still, there's a reason everybody wants to compete. There's a reason 
everybody wants to qualify. There's a reason that those that qualify want the gold medal. But at the end, there can only be one world champion, and that's what it takes. Clearly, that's what it takes. And and you accomplished it because of your grit, and you accomplished it because of how bad you wanted it. And, I mean, there's, there's not much to say besides that. You're a world champion for a reason, and everybody else, however great or not so great they may or may not be, that that's the difference right there. It's how bad you want it. And I'm just going to pause here, like within the story and just talk to the audience and say, like many of us could want to give up or many of us could say, you know what? The adversity is too much. I'm not going to deal with this. But when you hear from a literal world champion, that's not a phrase. That is a fact A world champion. And the story, I mean, if you want something, that's what it takes to be a champion. You have to be committed to getting the job done. You were saying, as long as I'm still breathing, I'm getting the job done. And some sort of my mentality going into many things is uh, the there's this analogy, I think, with uh, with the treadmills. So you step on a treadmill and somebody else steps on the treadmill next to you as in competition. So in life competition mm-hmm. and you start racing, right, to see who can go faster. And, and it's either I win or I die trying. Simple as that. And I feel like that's exactly what you're saying. But the thing that's special about this is that the competition, although there are many others competing for it, was yourself. You were competing with your own adversity. I think that's special. And I think everybody should learn from that because the next time you have an excuse – let me know if you have a, a blown out ab, a bad <laughs> ankle, and yeah, just just let me know if, if you can throw the way uh, Cam did. So, so remember that no excuses, no giving up. You can deal with adversity for sure. Um, well, thank you. I will definitely say that um, those that three weeks of recovery afterwards, uh, you know. Definitely know your body. Yes. <laughs> know what your limits are. I mean, don't kill yourself or anything <laughs> like that. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. None of that. But if you know you have it in yourself to keep going and to keep moving, then you owe it to yourself yeah. to try. And I think that's that really is kind of the way I was thinking going going into that. And that sort of... I guess mindset has continued, you know, I've continued to use that through until today and I will into the future as well, you know, no matter how long I end up doing the sport for, you know, like you said, with the treadmills, either win or (laughs) die trying. Those are the only two options. Yeah. Yeah. In everything. And that's not in sports. That's not in treadmills. That's, that's in life, you know, and I do promote self-care, sleep, and of everything course, like that. Of course, take 100%. care of yourself. Yes. Love yourself, <laughs> take Love care yourselves. of yourself. Mm. But if if you want something bad enough that way, you just have to do it and know that pain is temporary, but the gold medal is forever. So you gotta you just gotta know what you want more. I always used to kind of laugh at I just like quotes like that because it's just like why would anyone put themselves through that much pain yeah no why do that and they all sound the same they and all have that same kind of again that cheesy sort of 
uh, whatever kind of takeaway at the time until you're put in that position. Exactly. And, and I want to touch on that because I love quotes and all of them all sound the same. They're all cheesy. But if they're, there's something in common amongst all of them coming from people that are successful, I mean, it's right there. That That's why they work. That's why they're true. And I mean, we, we just heard from that. So there's there's really no magic spell or some sort of solution or, or wish that just becomes a reality. It's listening to the people that have already gone through it, learning from that and saying, hey, they, they just push themselves to be able to do it. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. And you clearly did that. So after becoming a world champion, amazing. I, I mean, your resume is just stacked. I don't know if you want to go through it, but up until now, how is that? How what's happened since then um, in a quick way, in a quick resume way and leading up to Tokyo? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I'm curious. Uh, actually, yeah. Do you have anything written down? <laughs> Do you not know your own resume? Are you kidding? I, it's more, it's more just, um, I don't know. I think, I think as an athlete, you're, I think you value certain moments. Okay. I think differently than, than what is just in your resume because I mean, woohoo, won a world champ, like championship, but getting over that fear of pressure and then using it instead is something that you know I also take away with just as high of a regard okay I think but uh okay resume wise uh okay 2019 oh yeah because Worlds is in 2018 oh my god I feel so old World Champion 2018 (laughs) 2018 so 2019 came back and uh, NCAAs. Okay. Qualified this time. Qualified. Yeehaw. One. One. Okay. National and champion. National champion, and then that summer went to Pan Am. Yeah. Seniors, and came came sixth. That was an interesting experience as well. Okay. That was. Yeah. It was another, your first professional competition. It was. Yeah. It definitely was. Very big learning experience. And another, I think, moment with lots of learning curves, Okay. I think, in my journey. Just because this time, it, it felt so different to the year before being at Worlds. My coach wasn't able to go. He wasn't able to get a coaching pass this time. And... I think being on junior teams, you know, you're with other people who are, you know, the same age as you and kind of like in the same sort of place in yeah. life, sort of. But when when you're on a senior team, all of a sudden you're surrounded by all of these just incredible, incredible athletes. And you're like, where do I fit in? Yeah. <laughs> You know, like, what? what is my position amongst these insanely amazing professional athletes? Yeah. I felt very young, I think, going into that field. And that was another moment where I had to learn that 
I may be the youngest here, but I am here. You're there for a reason. The, the numbers don't lie, you know, you qualify for a reason. And preparing for that, too, in the best way, that was another thing I learned as well. I think my preparation beforehand, it changed just, I think, with the circumstances around where we were able to practice. And I went to Peru right after Canadian Nationals, and I wasn't able to train really during that time before going. And it's basically... I think what I learned from that experience was that no matter what kind of access you have to training environments or training materials and implements, you just have to do as much as you can. Yeah. You, know, you have to make it work. I think that was my biggest takeaway. Yeah, having to make it work one way or, or another. And like you mentioned, I hadn't realized this, but you're completely right with with your resume at the beginning, how you value experiences more than you do certain things. And we just talked about being a world champion and a national champion, but your biggest takeaway again is the lesson, the experience. So, I mean, it's the question I made in my own speech, I'm about to ask myself again right now, which is why do I celebrate the outcome or the result more than I do the process and the struggle? And I'm, I'm trying to highlight all your resumes and it's going back to no it's it's the process the values being learned during experiences like this and it's incredible that you had more to say about sixth place than you did about world champion and national champion and that's what life and competition is about i i do want to mention that it's not that i don't value or i don't appreciate the 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 feats that i've been able to overcome or or the competitions that I've been able to to win because I do. Yeah. You know, first place really is it's you bring together every moment, every one of those experiences, learning from it and then executing when you need to. Yeah. You know, it's it's working with your coach, it's having that fantastic support system around you. I really do value and I'm extremely happy with the times where I am able to do well in competitions, you know, that that's why we compete. Yeah. We're competing to win. But I also think there there really is more to it than just than just winning. It is those moments where you get to to learn and to take away these these new lessons. So that you can use them in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to close off with one of my last questions, like you were saying, using things in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite books is Relentless by Tim Grover. Ooh, um, okay. Yeah, and he was the personal coach uh, to Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and Dwayne Wade. Incredible. And, yeah, he's an amazing guy. I already pre-ordered his book, Winning. Um, this episode will come will just be released after the book is released so so it won't be anyways moving moving on one of the chapters in the book relentless is is on this two words two sentences that he mentions that every cleaner which is basically like the most relentless sort of athlete um has and it's done next so he talked about how Michael, yeah. I love that. <laughs> okay, I wanted to ask you if that's how it works for you because for Michael, for Kobe, it was, all right, 
I won an national. Uh, well, I won an NBA championship. Um, I finished that. What's next for for Jordan? It was can we go back to back? Can we go back to back to back? For Kobe, it was I want to get to six. For you, does that happen when when you win? Is it do do you celebrate it? Do you immediately start thinking about the next competition? How do you process um, winning? I think you have to take time to reflect on what it took for you to get there, to to win or to accomplish that goal that you had set in place. That That is important because I think when you take that time, you allow yourself that kind of happiness. You, you allow yourself to to be proud of what you've done. Of course. But in saying that, you know, there's a reason that people just always have to keep setting goals for themselves yeah. or else you fall stagnant. You can't settle. You can't settle. You know, I, I think I remember hearing this once from somewhere, but I've repeated it so many times in my life is you, know, you never do anything to settle. You never train to settle. You never study to settle. You never, you never put so much of yourself into something to settle for less than what you've worked for. And so continuing to set those goals for yourselves, for yourself, I think, you know, it really locks in that kind of, that kind of thinking where it's like, yay, I did this, I've accomplished this, I have, you know, hit this goal, Yeah. but there's still so much more to learn. There's still so much more to build off of and to grow and to, to develop because there's always ways in which we can be better. And setting those goals allows you to keep reaching and to keep pushing and to keep digging deeper within yourself to find what gets you to that next level. Yeah. So. Wow. Wow. <laughs> no, wow. That's that's amazing. So, yeah. I completely agree with, with everything you've said. Um, what about for you? For me, yeah, I am a the next type of guy. Yeah, um, I yeah. So I have the book somewhere there. I opened it this morning and actually posted the picture of that chapter on my Instagram story um, this morning because that's how I feel. Like that's how I work, and it's not because I read it in this book. Um, there's certain things in my life like done next and some other philosophies, especially with stoicism, that I've felt my whole life. But now I'm reading about them. Mm-hmm. I've always been that guy that, all right, I won. And I remember, like, if I won a tournament as a kid, my mom would be taking pictures of me holding the trophy. And it was like, yeah, like, it all went away as soon as the final whistle was blown. Like, I accomplished it. The The fun part was the process for me, not the actual outcome. So I am a type of the next type of person. Um, my parents do always tell me, like, try and enjoy it you know um and i did last night i honestly um treated myself with with a nice dinner um i usually don't i usually don't um good for you yeah i usually don't like like doing cheat meals but i was like you know what i'll have a milkshake for once um what wait 
Was it just the milkshake? Was it like a whole meal? Like, I want to know the details of this meal. I mean, it was, uh, so usually I went to In-N-Out and usually at In-N-Out I'll do like a, a protein style. So that's like lettuce instead of bread mm, and that's okay. it. And this time I had the number one, which is like double, double cheeseburger fries and the milkshake. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to enjoy Heck it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm proud of you. But as soon as I woke up this morning, I was like, yeah, all right, next. Next. What's, what's next? So I think there's a balance. Um, I do relate with Tim and his words a lot. I think that done next is amazing, but I've also learned that, you know what, these things don't happen every day. You want them to, and you're chasing after that, but also look back at your work and everything it took to get there. Take a moment to say, all right, well done. Wake up the next morning and say, time to get to work. Let's do it again. Let's do it even better. Let's grow. Let's learn. And yeah, that's how I work personally. I love that. I love that so much. Taking that time to reward yourself, but knowing there's more to do. Always. Always Always more to do. Like you said, you can't settle. Never. Never settle. Cameron Rogers, you are amazing. (laughs) I wanted to even get into like more details and stuff. um, Next time. Next time for sure. Um, I just realized this. I've been just looking at at the bars to see if uh, if it's recording the whole time, and I just realized on time. This is officially the longest <laughs> podcast yet. I did not even realize that. It felt way shorter than what it's been. You asked really good questions. Yeah, you told really good stories, so it, it worked <laughs> out great. Um, really, thank you so much for your time. I'm excited to watch you this summer in Tokyo. Thank you. Um, I don't personally follow too much uh hammer throwing but i will now and i'll I'll be supporting uh i don't know where i'll be but i'll be supporting oh and berkeley i'll be supporting from from the living room right over there (laughs) there we go thank you so so much for asking me to be on this podcast with you this was an incredible experience and you are an amazing person I can't wait to keep following you as well i mean look at this new relationship new connection thanks to that amazing leadership showcase last night which definitely everyone watching this should go watch because we had two other amazing amazing berkeley students talking at it and they just shared also really really wonderful stories but thank you for your time and for wanting to get to hear my story no i love that i i really did love your story i can't wait to get to know more of it and yeah, I mean, I'm not sure where the speeches are going to be posted, but definitely check them out. Mm-hmm. Shout out Cat uh, Rojas, shout out Cam Condo, shout out Dr. Hendricks and the whole Cameron Institute. Um, wherever those are posted, I will include them um, in the bios for the YouTube video and on Spotify or anywhere else where, where this will be posted. Um, definitely check those out. Um, follow Cam along on social media. What, what are your handles? Do you know? Uh, okay. I think it's Rogers underscore Rogers, Cameron. Yes. So on Instagram, Rogers underscore Cameron, which is probably my most active account. I do have Twitter. It's Cameron underscore throws. It's pretty much everything I share from Instagram. Okay. So I'd say go follow Instagram. All right. Check her Instagram out at Rogers underscore Cameron. Yes. Um, and yeah, you know my social media. It's in the bio. If not, um, if you're on YouTube, please like and subscribe and share with any of your friends if you're on spotify just click on all the buttons we'll see what happens um anywhere else do the same uh and yeah thank you so much for following along this has been denting with fair very special episode really really like this 
longest we've had so far and it didn't even feel like it. I'm sure everybody's going to love it. Thank you so much, Cameron. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to my podcast and follow me on my personal social media accounts for more. All at Fer Andrais. All links are in the description. If this episode inspired you in any way, please help me out by sharing it with a friend to help them leave their dent in the universe as well. That's it for today. I'll see you all next time.